Well, as you are seated, you can go ahead and turn to Psalm 32. Like Esai said, we're going to continue this uh, little mini-series, and uh, the graphic is, is very appropriate today because um, this, this series is spiraling downward, uh, if not simply for the choice of preacher. Um, but we will be looking this week at a psalm that is focused inward. Last week, uh, Austin raised our minds and our hearts to the heights of God's majesty and glory. And, and this week, we will be looking at a psalm that focuses on the reality of our sinfulness. Psalm 32. I'll read it. It's 11 verses, and then we will look into it. Psalm 32, a mascal of David. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. Selah. I acknowledged my sin to you and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Selah. Therefore, Let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. Selah. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. This is the word of God. I must have been around 11 or 12 years old when I heard my first Pearl Jam song. I know many of you, um, that's a little older for you. Some of the staff remembers Pearl Jam. I was walking back from uh, training at a soccer field with my buddy Pat, and he was singing this, this song, and I said, what, what are you singing? He said, it's Pearl Jam. I'll, I'll never forget it. It's a moment in time for me. Uh, that, that kind of shaped the next several years of my life. I, I became uh, a fanatic about Pearl Jam. Um, they call them jam heads, kind of like deadheads. Well, that's way before your time. Um, and I, I just became obsessed. I, I knew every Pearl Jam song. I would go to their concerts and I would sing for three hours straight. Yeah, they did three-hour concerts because they were Eddie Vedder's the man. Um, and you know, I, at the time I was uh, getting into high school, I didn't understand all of the lyrics. Um, I, it's funny, I went back to a Pearl Jam concert when I was in college, 
And uh, listening to some of the songs, I was like, oh, that's what that's about. I had no idea. Um, but, but I loved the, um, there was an angst that was expressed. There was a passion. You don't have to be a fan of grunge uh, or, you know, Northwest uh, Seattle grunge bands to appreciate the passion in a Pearl Jam song. There was a song that came out in 2002 off their album Riot Act. It was track number three. It was called Love Boat Captain. First time I heard it, it resonated with me. And it's stayed with me ever since. There's a line in that song where Eddie Vedder, the singer, says this. For the young, they can lose hope because they can't see beyond today. The wisdom that the old can't give away. It can be so hard for young people to look past their present circumstances. To look beyond Friday night. To look beyond the breakup. To look beyond the the failed job interview. Or the lost opportunity. As young people, we can be so absorbed with the present. I'll never forget my senior year, one of my classmates in college hung himself outside his girlfriend's dorm room because she broke up with him. Hopeless, unable to see beyond the present sorrow the present brokenness and despair. The young, they can lose hope because they can't see beyond today. The wisdom that the old can't give away. It's like you have someone who's been there, but they've gotten past it, and they just, if only they could communicate to you, there's there are more years for you. There's, there's more joy for you. Look beyond this circumstance. And yet, at times it feels like there's this Barrier between the wisdom of the old with the sorrow of the young. As Christians, the reality is our sin can make us feel hopeless, especially when it has a grip, especially when you've given it a foothold in your life, when it's taken you farther than you ever imagined it could take you. It can be hard to look beyond it. Several years ago, John Piper, speaking about this reality, said this. There is a tragic number of young people, like many of you here today, who at one point in their lives dreamed of radical obedience to Jesus and were joyfully willing to lay down their lives and sacrifice anything to make Jesus known among the nations, but then they faded away into useless American prosperity because of a gnawing sense of unworthiness and guilt over sexual failure that gradually gave way to spiritual powerlessness and the dead-end dream of middle-class security and comfort. He continued, So many young people are being lost in the cause of Christ's mission because they are not taught how to deal with the failure of sin in their lives. 
It's the guilt of sin committed that can leave us hopeless, drained of of spiritual life and vitality. And this morning, what I want us to learn from this psalm is how to deal with the guilt of sin. And we learn it from a heinous and a famous sinner, King David. And what he's going to show us is that there's, there's hope beyond sin and the guilt that ravages your soul. And he's actually going to teach us how to get there, how to find hopelessness in the midst of our sin. Um, David, in this psalm, if you want to sort of visualize what happens, he, he plays two roles here. He's going to play a historian, David the historian, recounting two seasons in his life, a season of rebellion followed by a season of repentance. And then he's going to step out of role of historian, and he's going to step into the role of sage, a, a wisdom giver. And he's going to give us two pearls of wisdom. Hurry up and repent and humble yourself before God has to humble you. I'm calling this sermon a song for sinners. We just sang three songs for sinners, didn't we? Glorying in the forgiveness and the victory of the cross. But this psalm is a song for sinners, which means that it's a song for every single one of you here today because every single one of us has a relationship with sin. Um, yesterday, I, on Saturday mornings uh, there, at Valley Bible Study, what's up, Valley? We do a, a men's study called Doctrine and Donuts. And yeah, that's good. That's okay. I like that. I appreciate that. That was like a respectful golf clap. It was like a very classy, and that's what you get at Doctrine and Donuts. It's very classy men studying the deep things of God with sprinkled donuts. And uh, one, of the, one of the guys yesterday said, he said, if, if we've been so satisfied by Christ, why, why do we keep pursuing sin? It's just the reality of the fallen world, isn't it? That though in your relationship with Christ, the dominion of sin uh, is over, sin no longer reigns in your life, Christian, but it does remain. And so each one of us in this room has a relationship with sin. Maybe some of you here right now, as I say that, know the very sins that you're seeking to hold on to, and you don't want them to be exposed. Or maybe you've, you've come out of a season of, of victory over sin, and you're rejoicing at the, the power of God's grace in your life. It doesn't matter where you are or what you're going through. You have a relationship with sin because every day in this fallen world, you have the press of a world pulling at your flesh. You have a spiritual enemy designing or his arrows to take you out. And yes, the greatest enemy of all, you have your flesh that continues to crave that which you no longer love. I also want to mention there's there's some of you here undoubtedly who your relationship with sin has never changed from being in love with it. And my prayer is that today you would see the hopelessness of the love affair with sin. 
And you'd find the freedom and the joy of knowing Christ who rescues you from it. But in this psalm, David is showing us the path to happiness. And that path goes through repentance. Look at how he begins. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and whose spirit there is no deceit. Before we get to him acting as historian, um, David, right at the outset, gives us the main point of this song. And it's there with the very first word, blessed. That word is the Hebrew word for happiness or delight or, or blessedness. We could translate this, happy is the one whose transgression is forgiven. And if we kind of just zoom out for a moment about the book of Psalms, these 150 songs collected, that's what the entire book of Psalms is about. It's the, the instruction manual for how to live a happy life. Remember Psalm chapter 1, verse 1? Blessed is the man. Happy is the man who, who does not walk in the pathway of sinners. The end of chapter 2, Psalm 2, verse 9, happy is the man who takes refuge in the sun. The Psalms are setting itself up as, as a gateway to happiness. Do you want to have a blessed life, a happy life, a satisfied and fulfilled life? Here's how. And so as you walk through the Psalms, there's different stops on the tour toward happiness. And this Psalm, Psalm 32, stops at repentance. David is going to show us how to have happiness in the midst of sin. And he opens with that sin being forgiven. He he uses three words for sin. If you noticed in verse 1, transgression and sin. And verse 2, that word iniquity. He's really using almost every possible word he can for rebellion. Transgression, it's more of a military term. It's like a revolt or rebellion. It's willful. He made a decision. Like a military commander says, we'll strike at midnight. Transgression has the connotation of willful rebellion. He uses the word sin, which has the the idea of missing the mark. This is in relation to the law. The law has a standard and David's actions have missed it. And then he says iniquity. Interestingly, the Hebrew word for iniquity has this idea of twisting and perversion. In in transgression, David is viewing his sin in relation to God. I have made an assault upon God. In sin, the word sin, he's viewing his transgression in, in, in view of the law. I've missed the mark of what the law demands. And in iniquity, he's showing us that something is perverted in his own soul. His own sin has twisted and corrupted his desires. Knowing that it's David who wrote this, I wonder if we can think of an incident in David's life that he might be speaking about where the only way to describe it is by using every possible word for perverse rebellion. Can you think of an instance? Shout it out. Anybody? You won't be wrong. You can just pick any of his sins. Uh, Bathsheba. That's what you were thinking, right? 
So why don't you say it? That, that famous incident. Second Samuel 11 is when it begins and the opening of that chapter. In the springtime, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab. We know the story. David gives up his responsibilities as king, decides to stay back as Joab handles the battle, and he's relaxing in the evening, walking on his roof. And we read in verse 2 of 2 Samuel 11, it happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. What ensued was an affair and a pregnancy, followed by great acts of deception and murder. This psalm is written in response to that season of David's life. And I say season because it wasn't one action, it was a prolonged season in David's life of continued and persistent rebellion. We don't know how long David's rebellion remained, but it was at least nine months because that's how long it takes to carry a child. And it wasn't until after his son was born that he finally repented. And we're not told how old the boy was, but David's rebellion went on for nearly or at least nine months. And this psalm is one of two psalms written in response to that season, Psalm 51 being the other one. And this one, if you notice in the superscription, is called a mascal of David, which we're not exactly sure what a mascal is, but probably a a composition or a poem of reflection. And so David is here reflecting on that season of life where he ran so far from God. He uses in these opening verses God's res- or for three words for God's forgiveness. He says, the sin, his transgression was forgiven, which means lifted off or taken away. The end of verse one, his sin was covered, out of sight, it's gone from him. And verse two, it was not counted against him. This, for you accountants, is a shout out. You don't get a lot of a sh- shout outs, accountants, in the Bible, um, Sorry about that, but here's one for you. This is an accounting term. David's sin, if somebody was in heaven with a ledger writing down all of his rebellion, at this point when he says, the Lord counts no iniquity, that accountant was commanded to throw away the ledger. And so for David, after such a season of rebellion, what a happy place to be forgiven for his sin. But it wasn't always like that. David then goes on for us, beginning in verse 3, to play the role of a historian. David steps in as historian because he's going to recount for us what happened in these two seasons of life, his rebellion and his repentance. And in verses 3 and 4, we have season number one, repentance. Look at what it says. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. 
David, in recounting this, I imagine, even as he wrote those words, would have still felt the, the pain and the anguish. This incident in his life was not quickly forgotten by David. And we see in verse 3 the nature of his rebellion. How was David rebelling against God? Well, that first initial phrase, his rebellion was the covering of sin, refusing to expose it. And I want you to take note of that idea of covering because we find it throughout this psalm and it begins with David covering and hiding his sin. He wasn't going to admit it, as wicked as it was. He refused to confess it. We see in verse 4 God's response to that covering and rebellion. He says, for day and night your hand was heavy upon me. So if David's rebellion was to cover the sin, God's response was to discipline David for that. Um, he, he describes God's discipline as, as a hand pressing upon him. And as that divine hand pressed upon David, the, the picture is one of misery. Look at what he says in describing it. My bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was pressing upon me. It was heavy. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. This is a picture of, of David wasting away on the brink of death. My wife loves uh, the Weather Channel. She always has, apparently. Not my choice of uh, entertainment. But last night it was. Uh, she was watching the Weather Channel, and there's a show called SOS, um, How to Survive, or something like that, where they actually uh, go through scenarios that people found themselves in and teach you how to survive them if you're ever in them. And last night there was a guy who um, was hiking, an experienced hiker in Austin, Texas, and he got lost. And he was describing these days in the desert with no water, no shelter. And he said he was trying to peel a a cactus to get a little bit of water and, and just cutting the cactus, he was out of breath and weak. Could hardly even breathe. I don't know if you've ever felt that, um, exhaustion, dehydration. David is feeling the press of God's discipline on him. And, and he's using poetic language, so we don't know exactly how this was expressed. But that's helpful for us because um, it's, it's not specific enough that it allows us to, to enter into that grief and that misery in our own experiences. But I want to note to you that this um, reaction by God to David's rebellion was a gracious one. God doesn't destroy David. Instead, he allows him to feel the frailty and the weakness of his being. If you follow this analogy of God's hand, if God is pressing down upon David, he's pressing enough, but he's not crushing him. And, and you think the reality of that is actually God's mercy and grace. Just think of what David had done. David had stolen a man's wife, using his power to usurp her and use her for his own pleasure. 
And then when news gets back that Bathsheba is pregnant, David seeks to bring Uriah, who's fighting for Israel's freedom, back from the battlefield and seeks to deceive him into laying with his wife so that, have you ever thought about this? So that Uriah would assume that the child David had with Bathsheba was his. And David, for the rest of that child's life, would never say a word. The depth of that deception. Well, when it doesn't work, of course, David schemes how to kill Uriah. And all of this, with all of the knowledge of who God is, walking with God, talking with God, this is David, the sweet psalmist of Israel, with all of his intellectual grasping of theology and his closeness to the Lord, and he is vehemently and violently rebelling against God. And in response, God ought to crush David. And yet, he simply presses him. It's mercy. This is how God responds to the sins of his people. If you're a Christian, God will be gracious, though he will not let you get away with your sin. I want you to think about two texts. Proverbs 3 tells us, My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof, for the Lord reproves those whom he loves. As a father, the son in whom he delights. God is a father in his discipline. Hebrews chapter 12, beginning in verse 7 a bit of running commentary on this text in Proverbs says, what son is there who his father does not discipline? If you're left without discipline, you are illegitimate children and not sons, but he disciplines us for our good. God is acting in his response to David's sin as a gracious and loving father by pressing David and and not allowing David to have vitality and strength and joy, but by stripping him of his strength and stripping him of his joy. I think we feel this pressing as David would have with an uneasy conscience, a loss of joy an inability to function, a draining of spiritual vitality. God just won't let his children enjoy their sin. Haven't there been those seasons in your life where you've determined, I just want to enjoy my sin. Can't you just let me have this? But he won't let you because he's treating you like a child who he loves. I want to give you an illustration of this from uh, a movie I haven't seen called RRR. Well, here's the thing. I was going to see this movie, but then I discovered that I have to read it instead of watching it. I like to watch my movies, not read it. Subtitles. Um, I have no idea what this movie is about. Apparently, there's British rulers come into India and seek to overtake. Have, have you guys seen this? Anybody seen it? Okay. So it's like, okay. Oh, three people. Great. Um, apparently it's like taking the world by storm, the cinematic world. Um, but, but there is an interesting moment uh, that one of the guys was describing to me where these, these British rulers come into a tribe in India and they're seeking to rule it and overtake it by force. And one of the, the British um, 
kind of oligarchs or whatever, uh, sees a young woman in this Indian tribe who has a beautiful voice, and so he steals her from the tribe, just takes her, and brings her to his home, and she is a slave who sings for his parties. Uh, the, 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 the British are warned that they've basically messed with the wrong tribe, and there's a, a sequence in this movie where somebody says to a British officer these words about this tribe called the, the Gond tribe. Even if you oppress them, they won't raise their voice, but they have a trait. They like staying in herds like sheep. Even if one lamb goes missing, it causes them great distress. This is why the herd has a shepherd, and he protects the herd with his life. The shepherd will travel however far to retrieve the missing lamb, be it morning or night, sun or rain, rocks, mountains, valleys, peaks. He will search every nook and corner, and if he happens to find that lamb in a tiger's mouth, he will break its teeth, pry its jaws open, and take the lamb back to its herd. And that's what happens. This shepherd goes on a quest to save this young girl, and pry her out of the jaws of the British oligarch. But that's a picture, isn't it, of God as our spiritual shepherd, as our father. When his children go astray, even when they're running headlong toward the tiger to be uh, uh, gripped by its jaws, God pursues And he returns. He loves us too deeply to let us go in our sin. And so here, God is pressing on David, not allowing him to enjoy his sin. And look at the end of verse 5. Selah. It's a liturgical term that probably means pause. Selah. I'm sorry, the end of verse 4. David is reflecting on the misery of his rebellion. Well, that's the first season of his life. The second season of life that he is walking us through as this historian is that of repentance. Verse 5. I acknowledged my sin to you and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. David repents, and he does so by uncovering what he had been covering. And he uses three words to describe his repentance. The first is acknowledge. I I made my sin known to God. God already knew his sin. But essentially what David is saying is, I'm agreeing with God about my sin. I am ready to speak to you, God, what my sin is, though he already knows it. He says, secondly, in verse 5, and I did not cover my iniquity. No more covering, no more excuses. And finally, I will confess my transgressions, which has this idea of speaking openly and publicly about them. Notice that these are the same three words he used in verse 1. Sin, iniquity, and transgression. Um. If you look at the, at the end of verse 2, David says, Happy is the man in whom there's no deceit. Notice how David, at this point of confession, 
Notice what he doesn't call his sin. Mistakes, error of judgment, misstep. No, no, no. There's no more deceit in David. He's not trying to present his relationship with Bathsheba going, well, if she hadn't been bathing on the roof and if Uriah hadn't been so stubborn and if No, 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 no excuses. David calls it what it is. He acknowledges it in its full depravity and evil to the Lord. There is no deceit in his heart. And and friends, what we can learn from this is the reality of genuine repentance. Genuine repentance is not reputation damage control. There are no excuses. It is full ownership of and agreement with God and full exposing of your sin. I want to give you an illustration of this. Uh, Some years ago, some of you may remember this, um, there was a case brought against accusations and charges brought against the uh, USA Olympics, women's Olympics uh, um, physical therapist, Larry Nasser. It's a man who had abused hundreds of gymnasts. Rachel Den Hollander uh, was the first woman to bring accusations and charges and, and courageously speak up against this man. When he was being convicted, the judge allowed every victim who wanted to, to give a statement to the court. Rachel said these words to Larry, her abuser. Larry, you spoke of praying for forgiveness. But Larry, if you have read the Bible, you know forgiveness does not come from doing good things as if good deeds can erase what you have done. It comes from repentance which requires facing and acknowledging the truth about what you have done in all of its utter depravity and horror without mitigation, without excuse, without acting as if good deeds can erase what you have seen in this courtroom today. The Bible which you carry says it is better for a stone to be thrown around your neck and you thrown into a lake than for you to make even one child stumble and you have damaged hundreds. The Bible you speak carries a final judgment where all of God's wrath and eternal terror is poured out on men like you. Should you ever reach the point of truly facing what you have done, the guilt will be crushing. That soul-crushing guilt is what David was experiencing in verse 5. For the first time in months, maybe years, the weight of his sin, as he confessed it without mitigation, without excuse, crushing his soul. David had gotten to a point where he could take God's discipline no longer. And he says, I acknowledge it. I confess it. I'll speak it publicly. I will not cover it. I have sinned. And friends, look at verse five and watch God's response. And you forgave the iniquity of my sin. And here we have the second Selah, Paul. We do need to pause here because there's 
a question we need to ask about that. How is this possible? How is it possible that that David, this adulterous, deceptive murderer, is forgiven? God is a God of justice, isn't he? Exodus 34, 8, he will by no means clear the guilty. Proverbs 17, 15, he who justifies the wicked and he who condemns the righteous are both alike an abomination to the Lord. God cannot look at a guilty criminal and let them go. That is an abomination, a miscarriage of justice. But here he does. David was guilty of heinous sin. And that simple phrase, you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Now, we might think, well, that, wait, that, that's good news, isn't it? That's, that's wonderful news. Not if you're Bathsheba's mom. Not if you're Uriah's father. You, you mean David gets away with it? You mean David can steal my daughter and murder my son and he just gets away with it, God? You can't do that, God. David needs to pay for his sin. He raped her, God. He killed him. How dare you simply forgive him and wash it away? You can't do that. You said you were just, God. I wonder if we've wrestled with this reality of forgiveness. How can God be just and not send David to hell? You know, I think most people actually wrestle with the opposite question. How could God be just and send me to hell? After all, God, God owes me. I've lived a good life. Of course he'll forgive me. He, he owes me. Maybe you don't say it, but haven't you lived it? He, he, he owes me a healthy body. A beautiful spouse, healthy children, a good job. He, he owes me financial security. The sun to rise tomorrow and warm my skin. God owes me these things because if God is good, how could he take these things away? I'll never forget it. My uncle, before he was a believer, his cat died. And he shook his fist in anger to God. His cat died. I'm not a cat person, but I imagine even if I was, you recognize that's an interesting reason to get angry at God. But that's our mindset, isn't it? God, God owes me this life, and God owes me these things. But, but my friends, God is a God of justice, and what we need to realize is that we deserve that every single sin that we have ever committed be punished. And so the question that this text should, should ask 
all of us or have all of us asking is the very one that I think Bathsheba's mother would have been asking. How is this possible? That little phrase at the end of verse 5, how is that possible not only for David, but how is it possible for me? Turn with me to Romans chapter 3 for a few moments. In Romans chapter 3, Paul has just gotten done this indictment of the human race. Chapter 1, indicting the, the heathen who had, did not have the law. In chapter 2, the religious Pharisees. And in chapter 3, verses 10 to 18, Paul is saying everyone is a sinner who has fallen short of God's goodness. In verse 19, he says everyone is accountable to God, the just judge accountable Verse 20, he takes away any opportunity you have of working your way out of this thing. You can't be justified by keeping the law. You've already broken it. But then watch what he says beginning in verse 21. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Though the law and prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Now pause there. God's justice, my friend, finds perfect resolution at the cross of Jesus Christ, where Christ took the place of sinners, bearing the penalty of their sin and giving them the righteousness that they did not deserve, which means because of the cross, the vilest sinner, David, but also you and also me can be counted righteous because Jesus took our place. The, the, the greatest words you can ever hear, 2 Corinthians 5.21, for our sake he, God, made him, Christ, to be sin, though he knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Substitution. Jesus Christ taking our sins upon himself. And look at the rest of verse 25. This vindicates God's justice. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Because of what Jesus did, God, looking forward to that moment, passed over former sins, including those of David, knowing Christ would pay them in full. In fact, Paul says, do you want an example of this? Look at Romans chapter 4, verse 6. David speaks of this blessing to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. And then guess what he quotes? Psalm 32. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven. And whose sins are covered, blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. So going back to Psalm 32, how could God say to David, the Lord has put away your sin. 
you shall not die because God said to Jesus as he hung on the cross, I will not put your sin away. You shall surely die. Friends, there is no injustice with God. Every sin will be paid in full, either by the sinner in hell or by Christ on the cross. So you remember the illustration of Rachel speaking to her abuser in the courtroom? She did not leave him with the soul-crushing weight of sin and the guilt of sin. Her next statement was this. Larry, this is what makes the gospel of Christ so sweet. Because it extends grace and hope and mercy where none should be found. And it will be there for you if you repent. David acknowledged his sin. He did not cover his iniquity. He confessed his transgressions and the Lord forgave. Selah. The rest of the psalm, David steps in as a sage And he has two pearls of wisdom to give us. The first is hurry up, which is a pearl of wisdom I will use right now preaching this sermon. And the second is humble yourself. But I want you to notice something before we see these little pearls. Look at verse 6. Therefore. (laughs) He's just recounted these seasons of life and David says, Therefore, let everyone who is godly I wonder sometimes if we look at King David and say, I would never. Oh no, he's speaking to the godly. He's speaking to you. My friend, you are not far from sin, transgression, iniquity. He's speaking to you. And he tells the believers, hurry up. Verse 6, therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found, because surely in the rush of great waters, they shall not reach him. Don't don't wait until the agonizing hand of, of God presses upon you. Repent today. Because when the waters surge, there's no repentance then. A few years ago, there was in the Qumran area of Israel, in what's called a wadi, the places that are dry for most of the year and and hikers, repellers, hike up these cliffs. Uh, Every once in a while, when the waters come, they come torrentially and the the, the rain comes and and flash floods pour through these wadis. And in 2007, there were these repellers, uh, repelling, I guess, up the walls. Meteorologists had forecasted rain, and so Ofer, who was a photographer, came to the wadi to to take pictures of the torrential uh, and thunderous um, waterfalls that would ensue because of the rain. And he saw these repellers climbing. And so he began to warn them, yelling, get down the rain, the water's coming. And they shouted back, what are you doing? We're instructors, we got this. Listen to what Ofer said. When a flash flood hits, it's like a bus hitting you at 100 miles an hour. 
It's like millions of buses worth of water coming down all at once. And we told them they were going to die, but they didn't listen. I saw these people and knew they were going to die, and they didn't listen. I felt so helpless. Friends, that's David saying, hurry, repent. And what will you find? You'll find verse 7. That's one of the fears of our refusing to repent because you know just how wicked your sin is, right? And and it's as if I, I can't confess this. I can't open this up. It's so vile. How could I ever speak this to God? And there's a fear, a trepidation of his hand might crush me. Oh, friend, he won't crush you. Look at verse 7. You are a hiding place. As that hand comes down, he grabs you and he hides you away. You preserve me from trouble and you deliver me. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. So, so Christian, hurry up and repent. Second pearl, verses 8 through 11, humble yourself before God must humble you. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Don't be like a horse or a mule, which must be curved with bit and bridle, or it won't stay near you. Notice, God wants you near him. That's a remarkable thought. And Look at what you get when you're near him. Verse 10 says there's steadfast love surrounds you. Verse 11, gladness, rejoicing, shouting for joy. He wants you near him. And he will make sure that you are near him. Even if he has to put a bit and bridle in your mouth. In other words, even if he has to humble and break you. Because he wants you near him. So David says, hey, quick thought, guys. Um, Go ahead and humble yourself and avoid the bit and the bridle. And you say, how do you humble yourself? That's a great question. Verse 5, you repent. Acknowledge your sin. The reverse is sorrow. Verse 10, many are the sorrows of the wicked. David acted wickedly and he experienced sorrow, but he repented and his misery turned to joy. There's so much freedom in being forgiven, the joy of a clean conscience, a forgiven heart. Friends, that's really the difference between a believer and a non-believer, a Christian and a non-Christian. Everyone sins, but how do you respond to that sin? Are you covering it, protecting it, hiding it, or are you uncovering it? acknowledging it, and confessing it. As Christians, we call ourselves believers, but I think we ought to call ourselves repenters as well, because happy is the one whose sins are forgiven. Let's pray. Father, give us humility and give us help that we would not choose sorrow over joy, but that we would humble ourselves under your mighty hand, that we might be near you in delight and in safety. I pray, Lord, that we would confess our sin and find the joy of forgiveness. In Christ's name, amen.